Hey everyone, and welcome to a special episode of the Epic Angels Investor Talk podcast. Today, we're shaking things up a bit. Instead of our usual conversation with founders about their startups and what caught our attention to potential investments, we're diving into the world of venture capital with some fellow investors. We'll be discussing a hot topic in the VC space, sharing insights and exchanging ideas. So grab your headphones and get ready for an exciting and informative conversation. Let's dive in. Shemaine, Catherine, thank you for joining again. Uh, We had a real fun conversation with the three of us about generative AI. Super cool to see where that space is heading. Today, we're talking a bit more generic about investing in Asia, angel investing in Asia. If I look at my own angel investment journey, I used to live in San Francisco and that's where I started my angel investment journey. Angel investing in the US is like getting a coffee. It's nothing special. Everyone can do it. You can do it with just $100. But when I moved to Asia, it was a whole other game. It was very hard to find investments, to find other like-minded investors. Hence why Epic Angels came alive, because I was like, let me start this myself. So that was Epic Angels. We are the female investor collective for whole of Asia. And what we've been seeing is that women like both of you, Shemaine and Catherine, are interested in this as well. You don't live in Asia. You both live in the United States where you're like, hey, tell me, can I join this? Tell me more about how can I join this investment group in Asia? So that's what we're going to speak about a bit more today. How can you invest in Asia? What is the difference between investing in the United States versus investing in Asia? And what can angel investors that are new to this game actually expect from that? So let me welcome Shemaine and Catherine first. Both of you, so good that you're here on the call. Shemaine, can I start with you? You now live in New York, but you're not from New York. Can you tell us a bit more from your background? Hey, Micah. So nice to be on this call again with you and Catherine. Yeah, so I grew up in Singapore, born and educated, but I've been living in the U.S. for over 20 years, and I really wanted a way to stay connected to Singapore. My background's in tech. I've been working in the tech industry. I've done some angel investing over here. These opportunities came by chance and I took them and I learned something, but I, I really wanted to learn more. So I thought about joining a group here locally, but when I got connected to Minecraft, I thought like, this is a great opportunity for me to stay connected to Asia, to learn about angel investing and also meet a bunch of cool women because, you know, I, I was really fascinated by this group of epic angel women. <laughs> there are people from, maybe you can talk about it later, Micah, how they seem to be from well different disciplines, but all very accomplished and all very passionate about making impact in the region. Absolutely. And Catherine, you're born in the United States. Yeah. And, and you find your way as well to epic angels. Yeah, I think actually my journey was similar to yours, Micah. Born and raised in the U.S., in the Midwest, and a smattering of other places, ended up doing my undergrad at Cal and ended up in the Bay Area startups, this ecosystem, which, as you mentioned, is just flush with startups and founders with interesting ideas. So I started more on the early stage founding team side of things. So worked for a few startups, advised startups, and then ended up moving there to start my own company in 2018, which was really unexpected at the time. I joke that I didn't know where Malaysia was on a map, but I moved there post-MBA. And I think I was really blown by how vibrant the ecosystem was. I had only been exposed to the Silicon Valley startup ecosystem. And 
there's just so much excitement and energy and potential in Southeast Asia in particular, which is where I was. And so I want to continue supporting and investing in the ecosystem abroad, not only because I've now had experience building there, but also it kind of is like an ethnic tie back as well that I feel connected to. When I was living in the U.S., no one speaks about Asia from an angel investment perspective. There's so much happening already within the U.S. and everyone is on top of that, but barely any conversations about Asia. So for me as well, when I moved to Asia, it was really a black box. I mm -hmm. didn't have any clue until I started to work with accelerators, with other VCs and, and started to learn that ecosystems like, wow, this is a life. Right? There's this hustle, the bustle, it's the excitement. I feel, I mean, I'm originally from Europe. I always joke, like in Europe, they're retired. Um, it's, a, it's a very slow moving ecosystem as well in the startups mm -hmm. and very risk averse. Whereas I feel in Asia, it's like those juveniles that are like, okay, you know, we're <laughs> on our way to adolescence and some really go weird. <laughs> but mm -hmm. You see all the different type of, of people growing up in the startup ecosystem. And with that, mm -hmm. so many opportunities that are being brought alive. And that's mm -hmm. at least what I see from my perspective. And what, what have you been seeing? What are the differences between the Asia startup ecosystem versus the US startup ecosystem? But just to back up a little bit, do you mind defining Asia for us? <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Because we always say as Epic Angels, we invest in startups all throughout Asia. What does that actually mean? Technically, we invest basically anything between Pakistan and Japan and China and New Zealand, that whole region. However, what we've been seeing is specifically China is still very hard to get in. So right now we've only done one investment actually with a company based in China, although their headquarters is legally registered in Singapore. That makes mm -hmm. it a lot easier for international investors to join. What you see is a specific, because there's so many local Chinese companies that definitely do not, not need money from international investors. That pool is definitely limited. So I would say it's, yes, it's the whole of Asia Pacific. We exclude the MENA region. I think officially it's also called Asia, but we see that more as the MENA region. So Pakistan, Japan, and then north all the way to New Zealand. Yeah. So my, my thing is that that's just an incredibly diverse region, right? <laughs> yeah. Like for me, I, you know, I grew up in Southeast Asia and just speaking from that, the market of Thailand and Indonesia and Malaysia, they're all completely different. That is one of the challenges, like language-wise, culture-wise. I saw that when doing globalization, I was at Google also. Um, so I think that is one of the big challenges. And I have to say, I have definitely shied away from certain opportunities because I felt like, for example, I couldn't evaluate a real estate proposition in certain region of Thailand, right? Yeah. But on the other hand, like, you know, there's a lot of richness in the variety. And it's, it's really cool to see the kind of startups that pop up. Asia is not like U.S. where you have different states and Asia, different countries. No, right? It's a need complete different cultures, languages, regulation, everything that's out there. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I was going to say key differences from the U.S. market and European market would probably be the ticket sizes that we're looking at for angel rounds. The challenges that those different countries face obviously are very different. Um, as we mentioned, it's quite a diverse group of individuals. It's not as homogenous, right? And as a result, I think demographically, they're facing different challenges, some of them going into the upper middle and middle income 
So they're starting to maybe have similar needs for, for example, fintech products and things like that. But then other countries in earlier phases of development might be looking for something closer to the ground. Um, we also see differences in their tech and kind of legacy systems. And that's one place that we've seen some leapfrogging in, for example, financial services, where in the U.S. we have very strong legacy of credit cards and credit histories and things like that. Whereas in other countries, for example, more familiar with Southeast Asia, Malaysia, and Thailand, where people are just leapfrogging to QR codes and digital you know, wallets, right? So it, in some ways, the challenges appear similar, in some ways, very, very different, but that creates more opportunity. Yeah, maybe we can speak about a specific example there, Catherine. Very recently invested in Boost Capital, who mm-hmm. is the Singaporean company operating a lot in Cambodia as well. Mm-hmm. They are giving access to the unbanked, basically, to savings products, loan products, where usually they would have to travel all the way to a bank, a physical bank. But that takes a day. That means a day not working. That means a day not income. So people don't mm-hmm. do it. They don't have a laptop or anything. They can't apply online with the U.S. known systems. That just doesn't right. work. Where Boost provides all the regional bank with a digital layer, just a simple chat message, just over WhatsApp mm-hmm. Messenger, any common system. Because I would say everyone has a mobile phone. Yes, right. That penetration is extremely high all throughout mm-hmm. Asia. Everyone has that phone. And so they completely skip a lot of steps and think about it from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, I think. In particular, using more of a chat-based approach, I think whenever I go back to Thailand or in Japan, other places, I mean, it's crazy how much business is run by chat-based platforms. I mean, in the U.S., we're still calling businesses to figure out like, hey, are you open or emailing or something like that? And the wait times are sometimes longer to get back or they just never get back to you. Whereas I was communicating and scheduling things over line, for example, in Bangkok, and it's just extremely convenient and it's extremely accessible and it's also kind of just expected. So I think it's interesting how, yeah, you see the accessibility and penetration of of phones, of course, and then also of chat and business. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a smart way to think beyond just like a new, a different app or a different application that they have to enter into and using an existing platform that their clients are already on or their consumers are already on. Mm -hmm. By the way, very (laughs) funny. This week, I'm currently back in the United States for a month and I don't even carry carts anymore because in Asia, (laughs) no one is carrying carts. You have everything (laughs) on your phone, right? Your phone is your wallet. You do everything with your phone. And I got into this store and then they wanted a credit card. And I'm like, I don't have a physical credit yeah. card. Yeah, never mm-hmm. anymore. What's so? Yeah, spelled backwards. It was hilarious. And it, what about it, cash? Right? It was a, <laughs> yeah, it was a shock when I came back because I was so used to the QR codes and the digital mm-hmm. wallets, and I came back to the U.S. and some places didn't even have PIN card yeah. receivers, so you're still swiping. So, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it has certain advantages. We have certain advantages to having those legacy systems in place, but then we don't see as much, you know, widespread acceptance of new methods. Mm-hmm. No, exactly. Mm-hmm. What's that for you, Shemaine? What have you been seeing as some of the major differences? Yeah, um, well, I mean, this brings to mind also, speaking of access, that there's a lot of people who still don't have access in Asia, right? There's a lot of opportunity there and a lot of also room to sort of like fill in for the government. You know, so one of the companies I'm thinking of, InvestEd, 
who in the Philippines, they're filling a big gap in student loan availability. And they actually outperformed the government repayment rate by like a huge amount. Like, I mean, they have a 90% repayment rate, which is crazy. Then the government abandoned these like programs because they were getting 10% or something. And at the same time, what I really liked about this particular company was that they, they got the former lenders who were students who graduated from the program to mentor people coming to the program to build financial literacy. So there's also this impact angle, and I wasn't really expecting that. Um, and I was, yeah, just generally very impressed by that particular company and a, and a female founder. Wow, right? Mm-hmm. I think specifically that one of Carmina, right, who's the founder of Invested in the Philippines. I love how she was like, because too often you see almost the American rules and standards being applied uh, right. in a country like the Philippines, and then it just doesn't work. Uh, but mm-hmm. what she did with Invested is really coming up with a different algorithm to approve people, like completely different mm-hmm. from any regular banking regulation with much better results. Yeah, mm-hmm. So that, and actually also it it allows even more students in to actually get a loan because initially so many people were denied a loan just because of some paperwork or some outdated algorithms that just don't fit with the reality on the ground. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think the impact that you can make or that these companies make like this one in the Philippines, it's just massive. It's so much bigger, I feel, than you see in Europe or in the United States. Yeah. You actually can make a difference in the country. Yeah. Well, and I think we were talking about this earlier too, that the government and a lot of the regulatory agencies in these countries are quite active in the startup scene as well. When we first entered into Malaysia, I mean, immediately we were able to join this ecosystem run by the UNCDF that was also partnered with government agencies. And the regulatory authorities were much more present and not just there to say, no, you can't do this or you can't do that, but there to say, here are the resources we have and, you know, here's the support we want to bring and we want to hear what entrepreneurs are facing and, and provide funding or provide connections. And so it felt a lot more like they were active stakeholders rather than just there at the end to castigate you or to, you know, do whatever it was that they were going to do. And in fact, on the impact angle, for example, in in Malaysia and Thailand, they were quite positive on financial literacy so that they would encourage any fintech providers to incorporate those elements into their company. So you do see a little bit of a different focus and investment in things that perhaps in other markets might not be seen as necessary or something that regulatory authorities might not care as much about. I think the role of the government, Shemaine, you're you're from Singapore. I think Singapore is a great example on how they've been able to boost the whole ecosystem on both angles. So programs for startups and a lot of grants for startups, but also a lot of programs for VCs to get the VC Mm -hmm. money into the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's been very impressive what Singapore has been doing. And there's so much space and, and everyone understands like, that's where growth needs to come from. And mm-hmm. I think in general, if we speak about growth, that, that for me as well, as an, I, I'm not Asian, right? As a European who lived in the US and now in Asia, for me, that's really mind blowing. If you look at the numbers where everyone in Europe and US is like, mm, right? Growth is definitely the stabilizing slash declining. Whereas in Asia, the growth numbers are still going up. And the expectance is that by 2030, the, the global GDP, more than half of it will come from Asia. More than half. 
right, will come from that region. It's 45% right now. If you look at the forecast for EU and the US, it doesn't look that good, right? It definitely looks way more like stabilizing. And that for me is a region where so much can come from. And that's also as an investor, the opportunity for me. Mm -hmm. There is going to be more growth and where growth is startups will win. And and that's where you want to be as an investor. Yeah. And it's still a little wild, right? So there's (laughs) still a little bit of room for opportunity. But there's also room for risk. Yes. How do you see that? Because I like how you say that. It's it's a little wild, right? It it is a bit, um, it it is like that, right? Do you know some examples? But the first thing I'm thinking of actually, you know, it's the climate of the country also makes a big difference, right? Like we invested in in this telehealth service called Sahat Kahani in Pakistan. And they're amazing. I mean, they, I think at the time, which is a while back, they had like a million telehealth sessions and, and they got a lot of female doctors working for them. And apparently the rate of female doctors practicing is like 40%, but they were able to have like 80% female physician participation in their service, which is amazing. But of, of course, at the same time, Pakistan has a lot of instability in that in a political climate. So as an investor, we kind of have to stay on top of that and take that into account. Yeah, I think the infrastructure and the the political environment are definitely risks that, I mean, can somewhat be anticipated sometimes. But of course, as an investor, you're hoping that that scenario doesn't happen. I mean, there's also just government stability in other places, right? In other countries where you think they're relatively stable and then something happens. So obviously that affects the entire startups. I think infrastructure is also something that's extremely important, especially as you look at companies that can scale up the infrastructure can support the type of skill that they're looking for. For example, when I was running a tech company, there are certain countries in which that kind of model just doesn't work. So it's important that the infrastructure is stable, that the infrastructure can support the scaling of those types of that's always a risk, no matter what market you're in. Absolutely. And how do you see that, Shemaine? You're an engineer yourself. So you've seen tech up close in the US, but also in Asia. How do you look at the quality of the products of the tech talents that's out there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would say that there's plenty of tech talent in Asia. You got to do the homework. You got to evaluate the product and app. You got to ask the hard questions. And I feel like culture plays a role too. I mean, just growing up in Singapore, I have to say, you know, there's, there's certain stigmas, for example, around the ability to accept failure. I appreciate that now, but it definitely wasn't something I grew up with. Looking for signals around that kind of stuff, around the appetite for risk. And I would also say access, proximity to the source of innovation is also an issue. So just to give an example of like, you know, if, if, you're, gonna, if you're a startup here, a startup and you have direct access to open AI researchers when you obviously have an advantage than if you're in profile units following without that access. So I yeah. mean not that you know everyone is equal access in the US, of course. Right. Like, you know, but that's gonna be definitely a factor in evaluating the status as well. It's more concentrated in the US, right? I mean, where you can go to a couple of big cities and Catherine, you and I were together in San Francisco last week and in the middle of a conversation like, oh, let's go to this summit next door, right? And there's this generative AI summit literally next door uh, where this Mm -hmm. guy who used to work at OpenAI and now founded his new business is speaking. And we had like 100 engineers Mm -hmm. in that room all speaking about generative AI. That will be hard to find every day in Asia. I mean, you could definitely bring them together. They are around, but it's more spread out. And do you see that as well in terms of the 
innovation of the product itself that's coming up? Are you still looking in the US for innovation? Are you looking at Asia? Are you saying like it's it's coming from both, but it's just different? Innovation takes different forms, right? One thing that I liked about the niche that I found in the Southeast Asian market in particular was I just felt that the challenges were more human in nature in terms of what they were trying to address. And that's not to judge and say that, you know, not all challenges need solutions and tech. But for me in particular, I like to see that they solve human problems or social challenges. So the innovation, I think, it might not be as fancy. It might not be as tech driven, for example, as what we might see coming out of Silicon Valley. But the way in which they try to address systemic challenges, I think, is more interesting. I'll give you an example of one that's perhaps creative, but perhaps not desirable. In a lot of Asian markets, there are just so many unbanked people that don't have credit histories. And I think we spoke about this, how because they don't have credit histories, it's very difficult to assess credit worthiness. And as a result, they cannot receive loans from or conventional loan products from banks. So how do you get past this? Well, basically, you create a parallel system of fintech providers who provide loans based on alternative credit. And so there's a variety of ways to get this information. And some of the innovative ways that we've seen it done are kind of, for example, the equivalent of an Uber, like Grab. They have the right the history of their drivers, right? So you can kind of start to assess reliability and worthiness based on their history of actual rides, quality of rides. And that's actual data that means something. And of course, it makes sense. And you can create micro loan products based on that. An example of an alternative credit rating data area that I find less compelling is using your social media. But it is, you could say, innovative in a way, right, is pulling data from alternative sources. Whereas in the U.S., I feel that, sure, they're also looking for alternative credits and stuff like that and how to give out more loans. But Credit history is so baked into everything we do in the U.S. It's really difficult to survive without a credit history. When I came over from Europe to the United States, mm-hmm. uh, I couldn't get a credit card. Mm-hmm. So, so you're just blocked, yeah. basically. You're blocked yeah. because you've not been part of the system. And then yeah. it doesn't yeah. matter that you earn a good salary and you have a decent bank account and you're not in debt or anything, like zero debt. There's, there's issues with the system here as well. Right. It's it's so it's so institutionalized I, and centralized that there's no in there's not really an incentive, or it's very difficult to build a parallel, I feel sometimes. You know, that's what happens. Um, it's the same, right? In in Malaysia, I, when I was there for a while. I couldn't really access conventional financial products either. But there were plenty of fintech providers where, like I could use GrabPay and stuff. I didn't need to have that product. Right. And so the nature of innovation, perhaps because in areas where there aren't as strong of institutional players, perhaps there's more room for interesting innovation. One thing that we didn't mention before is that as a U.S.-based investor, your money could go further, either because of the difference in the currency and also because the market is saturated. Catherine, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the ticket sizes that we see for the startups vary quite a bit. In the U.S. market, we're looking at quite large seed rounds that make any angel investment very, very small or non-influential. 
or that don't even have angel allocation. Whereas in Asia, again, painting with that broad stroke here, there's much more variety in terms of the sizing of your seed or pre-seed round. And we've seen even with some of the larger investments at number up to two or three million that there's still an angel allocation. So your money does go quite a bit further because of that sizing. And also I think because Founders are kind of used to working with angels in a, in a different way that I found and want to have much richer relationships. So that allows you to not only invest financially, but also strategically in the direction of that company. Yeah, what you also see, if you, if you put in $5,000 in a company in the US, the next day it's gone, either on marketing or on salary. Whereas in Asia, if I put $5,000 in, they can actually afford a couple of people a whole month for that amount, depending, of course, on which country. But there are many countries in Asia where, look at Pakistan, they can have a lot of people on a payroll for a full month for that amount. And that's also impact that you can make, which is hard to get to in the U.S. So if you invest 5K in a company in the U.S. with the valuation that's out there, it's absolutely nothing versus valuations in the U.S. As you said, Catherine, it actually has some influence. I have a seat at the table, so that makes it fun as well. Yeah, that's a good point about the cost of doing business. There is a reason why when we originally started the company, we chose Malaysia because it had the right combination of infrastructure, regulatory stability, and then also low cost base. So definitely their money goes a lot further. Micah, I'm actually curious about your take on the trends and, you know, because you, I feel like you have a really good view of all the startups that are being sent your way. Yeah. And I think because indeed with Epic Angels, we see about 100 startups every month. So mm. that is wow. really, really a lot. Um, mm. We're not sending all these startups to all the angels, as you know. <laughs> we present about four to five startups that we feel like, yep, that's a good fit every month. Where what we in general see that our angels love is startups where you can really make an impact on society. Mm-hmm. And the examples that we just mentioned with Sahat Kahani that has such an impact on actually giving women the ability to work as a doctor and to actually use the education that gives at the same time also access to healthcare that many people simply don't have. And all of that with a good business model behind it or invested, it's the same. And so it's all it's not, it's not venture philanthropy that we're on to. It's really about angel investing with an ROI that we're all looking for. But at the same time, the opportunity to make an impact is so much bigger if you compare that to the United States, where so much is already established, there's so much in place. And sure, right, a new startup makes things a little better, but it's not really changing people's lives. Whereas in Asia, I see the opportunity is, is so much better. I mean, this morning, I spoke with a startup in egg freezing. And, and initially, I was like, okay, egg freezing, right? I mean, that's a topic that's been around for a long time already in the United States, but when mm-hmm. I went deeper, she was like, no, 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 you don't get it. It's barely done here in Asia. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. still a very nascent technique. The conversations are not happening. There's a lot of education mm-hmm. that needs to happen. And I'm like, oh, wow. Right. So that's the impact that you can actually make. And that's what I see with so many startups. And yes, right. It is looking into, hey, what worked in the United States? But then looking at it, what's the implication of doing that in Asia? How can we really do that different? And that's for me as well, where I see the difference between just a copycat and someone who really understands this region is different. So our approach needs to be different and really needs to be tailored. And yes, of course, we can look at trends and what happens in other parts of the world. Sure, because there is more wealth at this moment in those other parts. So 
but more wealth, new problems, opportunities get to the surface. And I think that's what I see in Asia as well. It's it's growing. As we just said, that whole GDP will be growing, which means the middle class will be growing. And with that comes all that new opportunity, new needs that didn't exist yet because we're still in the basic needs. And now it's about getting access to additional elements. And I think that for me is the beauty of Asia is that reach and that impact that you can have. Fintech, mm-hmm. super big, health tech, super big. Um, and those are those are really the two main ones, I would say. Uh, education, yes, because the biggest issue as well in Asia is all the different languages. It's mm-hmm. not like in the United States where you just do one language and you're done. Maybe Spanish, okay, and <laughs> that's about it. In Asia, you really need so many different languages that are not even using the same alphabet. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine Burmese versus Thai versus Indonesian? It's a different alphabet altogether, mm-hmm. Vietnamese, right? You, you can't even read it. Chinese, Japanese, it's completely different. So every country is a complete new market. And there's a few out there that really understand how to play that game. Um, and that's those are the ones definitely to look for. Hey, and, and what do we see? If we look at the founders, there's a lot of talk, of course, about female leadership, female founders. How is the landscape of female founders in Asia? Well, I was just surprised to see how many came our way. I mean, we could be attracted to Epic Angels because they are a female-only collective. And Epic Angels, I, I understand, Micah, we tend to only consider companies that have at least one female founder, isn't it, right? We also do male founders, but if that's the case, there needs to be a C-level woman on the team. I see. Yeah, so I love that focus. Because I think otherwise, I think representation is quite poor in Asia. You know, actually, right. I have to look at the numbers. I was actually looking that up as we were talking, Shamay, mm-hmm. because one thing yeah. that I found that was really interesting was just how many female founders I ran into when I was in Malaysia. And granted, they're not all startups that are going to receive funding, but that it was so common and so acceptable for that to be the mm-hmm. case. Whereas I found in San Francisco that predominantly there were a lot of male founders that I was running into. Actually, I almost feel I'm running into way more female founders in Asia than mm-hmm. in, in the U.S. And I don't yeah. know why. I mean, last week, I loved how you framed San Francisco, Catherine. You called it Man Francisco's. Like, oh, yeah, right. You <laughs> <laughs> both at that generative AI conference. And I looked around. It was like, they're oh, all men. God, it's all men. <laughs> it's all men in this room. Whereas in Singapore or in Vietnam, when I go to these startup VC related events, I would dare to say feels more 50-50, right? Probably, okay, maybe more 40-60, but definitely way more as here was like search for the woman. It's really hard to find. Mm -hmm. I actually feel it's more almost, but again. With an Epic Angels uh, lens, might see, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's hard to to judge, but overall, yeah. it's definitely what I see, and definitely at events that are not organized by us, but just by others in the market, there's way more women that I run into compared to the US. So that's that's a good trend. What is it for you that you would say to anyone who's considering angel investing, specifically in Asia? What would be your tip for them, Catherine? Can I start with you? I think one of the biggest things is just going there, right? You really need to experience the region, whether it's a long trip, a short trip, talking to people from that region. I think one of the faulty assumptions to make 
as we alluded to throughout this pod, is that you can just translate everything you learn from one market into another. So I worked in Silicon Valley, therefore this is the way business is done, right? And that's what happens when you're in a market for a very long time is you just, those things are ingrained. When I went over to Malaysia and Thailand and Hong Kong and other places, I realized that business was done very differently. And the way that I need to assess founders and investors and people in the ecosystem was very different. Just just very basic things like how do you create relationships? What kind of challenges are they facing? What do the demographics look like? What existing competitors are in the market? Is this something that is at risk regulation-wise, for example, digital banking license? Super interesting, but super difficult to obtain in Malaysia, for example. And so these are basic things that you need to be familiar with and not assume are going to carry over because if you do assume those things, you will not be successful or it'll be a very painful process and you're not really going to enjoy it. So definitely go over and visit, talk to people working within that ecosystem. Don't make any assumptions about the way business is done and try to learn and and get that clear. And then of course, as always, have your investment thesis and adjust it as needed. Have some focus going into the region, refine that focus based on what you learn from working within that region. And then hopefully have fun and be in exploratory and curiosity-driven mode. Don't come Mm -hmm. too settled with what you want to do because you don't know until you go there. For you, Shemaine? Yeah, I really have to echo Catherine. We've said this before, it's such a diverse region and so full of culture and richness. So enjoy that journey. And I would really like to add, join a group, join a group with support that complements your skills. So I'm going to toot the angel's horn here, but... You know, it really helps to have someone who has worked in Thailand chime in and tell me what the education system is like and what some of the challenges are there. Because otherwise, I wouldn't be able to do enough research to figure it out on my own. No, um, that's indeed the beauty, right? Especially, specifically yeah. with all the different countries. We have almost 200 female investors right now in Epic Angels. They're spread yeah. over all these countries. So indeed, when they visit, as you said, Catherine, they can also let us know and meet some of the angels locally. But also, as you said, Shane, um, if you do an investment, there is always an angel local into the country. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so valuable because even though for myself, when I live in Asia, I still don't know exactly what's happening in Thailand or in Cambodia. And yes, I've been there and I've even been there the past year. But still, you need someone on the ground to really navigate that landscape for sure Mm -hmm. well thank you for joining us i hope we're going to make many more investments together in asia (laughs) excited about that thank you we hope you enjoyed looking behind the scenes the objective of this podcast is to demystify angel investing and to share insights so you can learn more about the world of venture capital interested to see if you can become an angel investor yourself contact us via info at epicangelnetwork.com or go to our website at epicangelnetwork.com. And please remember, we're not a financial advisor. All opinions expressed by Epic Angels are intended as educational and reflect the personal research and experiences of the team.